Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Park. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California today. And as always, I'm joined by... Bob Bezanko, I'm back in Ohio this week. And um, as always, we begin this by thanking you, the people who are listening to this or watching on YouTube. Uh, without you guys, we wouldn't be doing this. And we do it because we give you a chance to hear really great people. And today's show is going to be phenomenal. Um, so please, if you want to support us, there are many ways to do it. But the easiest is just to share this. Uh, send it to your friends. Go to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Share it there. Follow us. Rate and review. Subscribe. You know, uh, the routine. Uh, because we do, I think, something. You know, there's a lot of ton of podcasts out there. There's millions of podcasts out there. But I think we do have a little niche where we're doing a lot of stuff that, that we're talking to a lot of people that you might not hear otherwise. Although today's this is kind of a big shot, so that won't be the case. But uh, um, anyway, uh, please help us by sharing and rating, reviewing, and subscribing. And if you really, really, really like us, um, Scott, you can tell them what they can do. Yeah, you can send us a few bucks. It's the end of the year. Everyone's asking for money, so we decided to do it as well. Uh, you can go to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button, and there's all the links are there. Or if you want to become a patron and make a regular donation, you can go to patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and uh, become a patron. We've got a small but mighty base of patrons. We're getting a lot of new ones lately, so please... Uh, become a comrade in our, in our patient account. Bob. Today, today I'm really excited. Um, we do a lot of interviews with people who are well-known scholars or authors. And then sometimes we get to do interviews with people we know. And then best of all, we get to do uh, interviews with people we know who are very successful and they just recently put out a book or something that's, that's hit big and they're very deserving of it. And so today we kind of hit the hat trick with our good friend, Michael Stewart Foley. Uh, I've known Mike for a, a long time. Uh, he's just, uh, I call you a versatile scholar because you write about so many different things. Mike got his PhD at the University of New Hampshire. He has taught in various places, including CUNY Staten Island, uh, Sheffield in uh, Britain, um, in the Netherlands, and is currently at the University de Grenoble Alps, where he very generously hosted me a couple years ago, and I got to give a talk and drink wine and look at the Alps all day, so that was, uh, <laughs> it was really a wonderful and memorable occasion. Uh, Mike's a prolific writer. We met each other because we were both working on Vietnam. He wrote his first book, which won, um, I believe, the Bills Award, was it, from yeah, Shepard? That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's called Confronting the War Machine, which is a great book about draft resistance in Vietnam. I think after, I don't know, when it was published, almost 20 years ago, it's still, you know, yeah, standard work. 2003, yeah. You're not that old. Can't yeah, man, I feel uh, that old. <laughs> but we all do. Uh, he also edited another book about Vietnam, um, Dear Dr. Spock, which is about Spock's letter. Letter people wrote to Spock about the Vietnam War. Um, Front Porch Politics, which is a great book about an area that's really important that we don't really talk about that much, which is the forgotten heyday of American radicalism post 1960s and the 1970s and 80s. Uh, the Dead Kennedys, Rex Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, which is, um, you know, kind of, a, I think, consistent with what we're going to talk about today, this idea of culture and music and politics. Also, the consultant and narrator for The Boys Who Said No, which is a documentary about draft resistance, which is really cool. Uh, also, a, a consultant for Mad Men, which uh, was very cool. And not just a scholar, but, a, but an activist as well, uh, especially active in the protest to shut down Guantanamo and, again, co-editor of Witness Against Torture. Uh, so, uh, and I'm leaving stuff out. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Mike's new book, which is uh, already making a big splash. It's called Citizen Cash, The Political Life and Times of Johnny Cash. And to begin, um, actually, I remember probably about 18 years ago, we were sitting at a bar. I was in your Times Square. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a massive snowstorm was heading toward New York. And uh, I was you know, just asking you what you were talking about. And you mentioned that you were interested in writing about the politics of Johnny Cash. So this has been in your head for a long time. So I guess just, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about why you got interested in that and what Johnny Cash, you know, the, the man in black persona, um, this guy who was, you know, clearly as an American legend, really, uh, why you wanted to kind of take this particular approach to him and, you know, kind of what, what you think is important about it. Sure. I mean, first, I just like to say thanks so much for having me on the show, um, on the podcast. Like, it's a privilege and it's nice. Uh, it's nice to. I mean, that was a very gracious introduction, and it's nice to um, be among friends. You know, when a when a new book comes out into the world, and you don't know how people are going to receive it. Um, so I appreciate the attention you're giving it. Um, but yeah, you're right. When we met that time, I don't remember what year that was, uh, and, we, and I was talking about how I was interested in Johnny Cash and his politics. It was a kind of departure from 
all the work that I had been doing because I'd been working on the draft resistance movement. And I really thought of myself primarily as a social movement scholar, but I was also, you know, my whole life, a kind of passionate fan of music. And although I wasn't, you know, I'm not old enough to remember the Johnny Cash television show or when the prison albums came out in the late sixties or anything like that. I was, I really appreciated his revival in the nineties with American recordings. And then as he got to be this kind of older senior statesman of country music, um, Columbia records or Sony, uh, you know, put out this concert recording from 1969 at the Madison square garden. And it, it took place in the first week of December, 1969, right. Which is, as you know, it's a really important moment in the history of Nixon's war, right. It's about a month after the silent majority speech. It's the same week that the Milai massacre uh, photos were published in life. And to my, like I bought that concert CD, you know, just because I love Johnny Cash and wanted to listen to this live recording. And then to my surprise, he started talking at length about the Vietnam War from the stage to, you know, 19,000 people at Madison Square Garden. And I thought, that's weird. I had not thought that he was even interested in stuff like that, you know? So I thought to myself, because I was already working on that front porch politics book, maybe I'd do an article on Cash, you know, maybe I'd just write about him in the Vietnam War. And I did eventually, like it took me a long time because it was kind of a side project, but I published this article in Popular Music and Society in 2014. And then that won a prize. And then that, I didn't really plan to do anything else. But won a prize. I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm onto something and maybe I ought to investigate how Cash engaged with other political issues, you know, at the time. So the book is really about his kind of evolution as a public citizen and the way that he grows increasingly confident in engaging public issues, the most pressing public issues facing the country at a time when, you know, this sounds familiar. Everyone was saying the country was hopelessly polarized. And he does it mostly from the set of his weekly television show and that ran from 1969 to 71. And that's the most vital new archival source that I use, you know, that most other um, cash biographers mentioned the show, but didn't, you know, use it to the level of detail that I do. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And that's how I've wound up, you know, where I am now with this one. Just to kind of start a little bit at the beginning and maybe some of the roots of, of where his where his politics come from is that Cash grew up in Dias, Arkansas, which was otherwise known as Colonization Project Number One, which was a New Deal development. Uh, his family were sharecroppers during the Depression. What what impact did the Depression slash New Deal have on on Johnny Cash and his politics? It's it's impossible to overstate the importance of that experience um, on Cash. You know of of for, from like a variety of perspectives, right? Of being of growing up poor and seeing uh, terrible poverty, much worse poverty than his own family experienced um, once they moved to Dias because they got, you know, lucky really, right? In being chosen as one of these 500 families by the New Deal's resettlement administration to be given an opportunity to have 20 acres of land and a house and, you know, a chicken coop and uh, a donkey and a pig and stuff like that, just to give him an opportunity, all his loans that they had to pay back. You know, it wasn't like a gift from the government. It was like, we're going to give you this and you're going to make a cotton crop that's going to pay us back, right? Um, and they did, you know, but all around him in Northeast Arkansas, right in Mississippi County, there are sharecroppers, you know, landless poor, many of whom go through episodes like spasms of being evicted by unscrupulous planters uh, who are pocketing all kinds of New Deal money and keeping it for themselves and kicking the landless poor, the sharecroppers out onto the road, particularly when they started to organize, you know, in the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, uh, which was first organized just two towns over from Dias, from where Cash grew up, you know. So he's got, he basically grows up in this like insulated, New Deal community in the middle of an, a an area effectively experiencing class war, right, in the middle of the 1930s, and where, of course, racism uh, is, you know, deeply embedded in the culture of the place, uh, where he sees, you know, horrific crimes against Black Americans. He sees chain gangs working on the levees and building the roads. Um, he lives through the Second World War as an adolescent, right, uh, in the same community where the community kind of rallies like the rest of Arkansas as Arkansas is transformed into a wartime state, including, you know, the home of two prison camps for Japanese Americans and German prisoners of war working in the cotton and soybean fields nearby, like all this has a profound impact 
on him. And of course, his younger or his older brother Jack dies during the war, trying to make extra money for the family um, in dire circumstances. Still, because families like that weren't experiencing the great wartime economic expansion that we kind of associate uh, with that period. So, it's really, and I could talk more and more about you know the religious uh, experience and things like that. Like he's just that uh, those years in Dias were formative in so many ways and informed the way that he related to other people, which is at the basis of his political engagement as a public citizen in the '60s. You know. One of the key things which you said very earlier is the, the politics of empathy, and I guess I'm assuming this is the word of all that, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, he's got he has this very clear uh, way of relating to other people, partic particularly people you know who have a tough row to hoe, um, and I think also just you know what what emerges in his art, particularly starting in the '60s when he he moves to Columbia Records and he starts doing a series of concept albums, is that he's got this really deep fascination with uh, observing and documenting. Like a, almost like a social realist photographer, right? The plight of all Americans. And it's not that he thinks of it consciously in that way, but it clearly appeals to him. You know, so we know from you know decades of him giving interviews that the, the records that really affected him the most were the, you know, John and Alan Lomax field recordings. Um, he became obsessed with all these Library of Congress recordings that the Lomaxes had made. And then, you know consciously or subconsciously, he starts kind of moving in that direction himself. Like he becomes a documentarian by the mid sixties where he's documenting the experiences of this diverse array of people who he really relates to on some level or another. And for a variety of reasons, mostly because it resonates somehow with his own personal experience, but not only because of that, like sometimes it's because he just, you know, he becomes fascinated by it. He does deep dives into the archives and does research on it. And he relates in that way, you know, um, and some of that work, you know, doesn't get, I think, enough credit for its political potency. You know, it's usually thought of as kind of middling Johnny Cash music. It's the years when he was a drug addict and compared to the Sun Record years or the stuff, the prison albums that come at the end of the 60s, these are records that aren't generally as highly regarded by fans or critics. But I think they're, they're worth looking at anew because of the, the political potency that you see um, present in them. And you had an article on Slate just uh, the other day, this week. Right. It's an on, excerpt, on actually. Yeah. Yeah. On Blood, Sweat and Tears. Right. Which is, which is a, I think you call it uh, one of his most significant albums, which is this period that you're talking about. And I, I was just doing a little background search on the album. And like, even in Wikipedia, they describe it as like a, a working person's album. But you right. talk about how it's actually more about race. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that particular album. Yeah. To me, this was like the most revelatory thing I came across in all the research for the book, actually. Um, what I tried to do was listen to every single record he made from Sun Records to Columbia Records to Mercury to American Recordings in order, right? And being constantly trying to think about the production of this art in the context of the historical moment in which they were made, right? And, you know, what's interesting to me is that growing up in Northeast Arkansas, he grows up in a place that's really racist, right? And he is himself a racist. We, we know from letters that he wrote home from the Air Force to his girlfriend at the time, you know, he uses all kinds of horrific uh, racial epithets in some of these letters. And this is well known because the letters were published over 10 years ago, you know? Um, but then at the same time, you know, years later, he gets out and he starts listening to these Lomax kind of recordings, which clearly have a deep influence on him. And he starts recording songs that either are songs that he heard recording on the Lomax recordings or that he interprets from them, right? And some of the first ones come out in 1960 on uh, the Ride This Train album, like Going to Memphis, for example. Um, but then also he does this really horrible song on that album called Boss Jack, where he basically writes a song about slaves writing a song about their kindly slave master, right? And this is in, he's recording it in Nashville at Columbia Records Studios down the street, basically from the sit-ins that are happening at lunch counters and department stores all over the city at that very week, you know? So it's pretty shocking. Um, but then in 1962, he's clearly, his attitude has clearly changed dramatically in the events of the civil rights movement 
I don't have direct evidence of this because he doesn't speak about it specifically, but it had to have had a deep impact on him because then he writes this album that is almost entirely about the black working man's experience in the United States, right? And like you say, the album's usually just thought of as a bunch of folk songs about working people, right? But the first side of that album is the legend of John Henry's hammer, um, tell him I'm gone and another man done gone. These are basically three songs about convict labor and they're all very clearly about African-Americans in convict labor, right? And they get increasingly kind of uh, more harrowing as you listen to it, right? If you listen to that album, which I recommend to anybody to go back and revisit it, listen to it on vinyl with your headphones on and imagine yourself in 1962 in the midst of the civil rights movement when violence is all around, where civil rights workers are being attacked and murdered, right? Um, it's shocking to hear Johnny Cash, one of the greatest country music artists performing at the time, perform these three songs in a row, and particularly Another Man Done Gone, where he even changes the lyrics from the original, which was recorded by the Lomaxes, and makes it even more harrowing than any other version that's ever been made of the song. Um, so I think, you know, the evidence and on the second side, there's also a bunch of other chain gang songs and, and stuff. So I think the evidence is overwhelming that he had this in mind. There's no accident that he made these songs, right, and put this album together to speak to the violence being visited upon black America in segregated America, right? The curious thing is that neither he nor Columbia Records made a big deal out of it. They weren't like, hey, look at us, we're making a civil rights record. You know, This isn't like Pete Seeger singing freedom songs. It's sort of like holding up a document like you would hold up a Dorothea Lange photo to your white audience in country music and saying like, you know, confront this, like deal with this. Um, and I think he wasn't, he also wasn't super confident as a public citizen at that point. He grows more confident over the course of the decade. Um, so he's not trying to draw attention to himself. You know, I think he just wanted to put it out there. But anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm blathering on much longer than you're supposed to answer questions uh, in an interview, I realize. No, 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 don't, don't, don't talk as much as you want. This is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're, we're the deep dive podcast. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, there's particularly in sort of today's political and, and social justice uh, atmosphere, there's, you know, there's a lot of criticism of Elvis, for example, around cultural appropriation. And right. what, what would you say to critics who would call this cultural appropriation by, by Johnny Cash of, of old black folk songs, et cetera? Right. Yeah. I mean, I can see people making that uh, argument. Um, of course, the term didn't exist at the time. And I think in the moment that he's making these records, he's thinking of himself more as a folk artist than as like a rock and roll guy or even a country music guy. Um, and one of the artists that I, I read a lot about who he's a great admirer of is the folk singer Odetta. And Odetta wrote herself, I think, a defense of this kind of uh, tradition in folk music of interpreting other, you know, other people's folk songs. You know, these are songs of the people that have been handed down over generations. And, you know, the Lomaxes themselves have been accused of the same thing, of cultural appropriation. When, and their defense was like, you know, we're archivists. We're just trying to document a tradition that's never been recorded, you know. Um, and so Cash clearly thought of himself as participating in this tradition. You know, uh, like I quote Blind Willie McTell saying, you know, I jump a lot of other people's songs, meaning he, he takes a lot of other people's songs. He kind of adds a few lines and makes it his own. And Cash definitely did the same thing. And some of like... Um, Tell Him I'm Gone is basically a lead belly song uh, called Take This Hammer, which he changes the lyrics to a bit. And Another Man Done Gone, he keeps the title the same, but he changes the lyrics rather substantially. And I think, you know, not so much because he thought he was going to make a record that was going to sell like an Elvis record. Like, I think he knew these are not records that were going to, that even Columbia was going to get behind so much. Um, and, you know, if I had if I had the evidence of like the internal discussions at Columbia Records, probably the reason that we understand that record or have been sold it as like just a, a collection of folk songs about working people is because they probably thought that was the best way to sell it to a, the widest American audience. I don't have that evidence, but I'm guessing that's the that was the reason. Um, so, you know, I think there's some merit to the question of it being cultural appropriation, if you think about it, because it's all songs coming out of the black tradition. But I also think 
that he wasn't he wasn't Elvis or the Beatles or the Stones making millions, you know, off a Chuck Berry riff. Um, he's and he's and he's much more earnest about the purpose of recording the song um, for you know in the way that the Lomaxes were to reach a wider audience. And you know, like another man done gone prior to that had been recorded only a few times, and you could only hear it if you were really into folk music and bought like some Folkways Records. Uh, album and now suddenly it's on a Columbia Records album in every record store in America. You know, um, and I I think Cash Defenders would say, you know, that's performing a kind of public service to to bring that that uh, experience to a wider audience in a way that only he could because of his standing in the field. I have one more question about race um, because I remember this it was very controversial and it was in 1965 he was walking out of court after a drug conviction I believe with his wife who's really dark skinned she's Sicilian right. but in the South the word got out that he was married to a black woman and. I just like you know how how did that affect him? Did that uh, anger him? Did it make him kind of more aware of of these kind of racial issues? Yeah, it did anger him. He um, this group called the National States Rights Party, which is a kind of you know, uh, it's like a you know an offshoot of the Klan basically. And uh, they had this they had this newsletter called the Thunderbolt, where they 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 took particular interest in anything to do with celebrities being involved in mixed race relationships. So in an issue just prior to the one where they publicized they've publicized that photo of Cash coming out of the courthouse with his um, dark-skinned Italian-American wife. Uh, they had previously gone after Chubby Checker, you know, who had been, who was, I think his girlfriend was a Swedish model or something like that. And they, or they had a picture of Lyndon Johnson at his inauguration dancing with the African-American wife of one of his, you know, undersecretaries. Um, and all this was just like horrifying to these nitwits. And uh, so they went after Cash saying that, you know, he was, uh, you know, in this mixed race relationship, that his children were mongrels, that uh, anybody who bought his music was supporting like the dilution of the race and stuff like that. Right? It's pretty ugly stuff. They tried to organize at some of his concerts and things like that to, to protest. Um, and Cash struck back, threatening them with a lawsuit, a major lawsuit, in way in a way that some prior writers have written about saying, you know, he almost made it sound like he wouldn't be caught dead with a black woman. But that he doesn't say anything to that effect. What he does say is that he really objects to the way his children are being characterized, right? And, and he says that he himself is a mongrel, right? Because he comes from, he's got all these different uh, nationalities coursing through his own DNA. Um, so, yeah, it was a kind of, it was a pretty ugly episode. And, you know, what's interesting to me is that here's the National States Rights Party, whoever these losers were, uh, you know, going after him. And they totally missed it about blood, sweat and tears. Right. And then by 1969 or 1970, when he's having he's physically embracing all of these brilliant black artists on his television show, like Odetta and Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles and Joe Tex, you know, like one after another. Um, there's nothing, you know, you don't hear anything. Um, so it seems like it was kind of last desperate act of this group. Um, to kind of raise hell about, you know, uh, mixed race marriages. And I mean, you could be critical of Cash, I think, because, you know, like Merle Haggard later writes Irma Jackson, you know, as, as a kind of defense of um, mixed race relationships. And Cash could have done something like that, you know, but he didn't. And I think it's, it's fair uh, to be a little critical of him for maybe not being more overtly outspoken um, on questions of race at times, you know. I would say that that, that group of people is not known for their keen insight. Um, no, I would not as, say that. as well as their disgusting views on race. Right, right. Um, kind of keeping up the theme of the, of the concept albums and sort of political causes. There's the concept album he put out about Native Americans, which is Bitter Tears, which includes the, the Ballad of Ira Hayes. Love that right. song. And then also uh, he you know did performances at San Quentin and Folsom and recorded live albums with those. And you know those were those were not popular causes at the time. Neither people in prison or Native Americans. Definitely not the way it is today. And right. I'm, I'm kind of and so he decided to take a stand on those issues. I'm kind of curious if you could say anything about his like reasoning. Why did he do that? Why did he choose to do that? Yeah, I think in you know in both cases these are clear expressions of his politics of empathy. You know, um, because in his own personal experience, for one thing, he came from a part of Arkansas that, uh, as I argue in the book, was effectively still the frontier. You know, when he was growing up, and the the presence of Native American 
like ideation, you know, in the imagination of Arkansans in that part of the country was still really strong. Um, and lots of people from that part of the country believed that they were at least part Native American. And so did Cash. He grew up being told by his parents that he was part Cherokee. He later learned that he wasn't. But for a long time, he truly believed that he was. And he took a special interest, you know, in the history um, of Native Americans. And later in this kind of period where he was gravitating towards folk music, he became friends with Peter Lafarge, who was one of the great folk music advocates of, you know, Native Americans and a real critic of American policy right up to the present, you know, including President Kennedy allowing the Kinzua Dam to be built um, in Pennsylvania, right, which flooded the Allegheny uh, Reservation. And that's all happening, you know, in the present, not like 100 years earlier. So Cash really related to that. And I think he also related to Native Americans from the, to the level, it's clear that he did relate to them from the level of being, of having experienced poverty, right? He visited these reservations and couldn't believe how bad the poverty was. And he couldn't believe that the federal government didn't intervene the way that it had to help his family, to help Native Americans. Like it just seemed like complete abandonment and completely inconsistent with what he understood to be, you know, the values of at least the New Deal, right? If not the United States. And then with prisoners, you know, uh, like I say, from an early age, uh, let's say what we would say today call, you know, carceral practices were all around, you know, uh, from an early age. And then, you know, he himself went to jail several times, mostly for being drunk in public and things like that. But he spent some nights behind bars and he started performing at prisons in as early as 1957. And he, he talked about that a lot in interviews about looking at the kind of deadened look in the eyes of the inmates to whom he was performing and feeling like, you know, there's something deeply wrong with the system. that's just like taking the soul out of these people. And so at a time when, you know, Ronald Reagan uh, is governor of California and Richard Nixon's running on a law and order um, platform for the presidency. Cash is, you know, one of the few major public figures standing up and talking about, or at least exposing to the wider public, you know, what the experience of prisoners was really like. And the Folsom record, you know, is like his, it's his chance to be Alan Lomax, you know, in a prison where, where the sounds of the prisoners and the sounds of the institution itself are as important as the music that he performs and the reaction that he gets from the inmates, you know, um, so it's like all of those things uh, are kind of products of this politics of empathy. It's not like he came to it because he, you know, had been reading books and he had some ideological take on it. It's just like he was moved viscerally by what he saw. Did he actually go do performances on reservations? He did. Yeah. He, um, he in fact, he famously gave up a 10,000 pound or dollars. I can't remember if it was pounds or dollars show in London. He passed it up so that he could go to a benefit concert. Uh, on the Rosebud Reservation at the St. Francis Mission to raise money. And that's one of the times where the press followed him. And, you know, he said to the press, like, I wonder where the hell the federal government is. I wonder where the hell the state aid is. Like, why do they need me to come here and perform this concert to raise money for a school? You know, he grew up in this New Deal colony where the school was paid for by the federal government, you know, um, and it just didn't compute in his brain. So, and then, you know, he also, that's the most famous concert performance at a reservation, but he performed at others um, as well. Also usually has benefit concerts, you know. None for AIM, I guess. None for AIM. <laughs> no, so that's a curious thing because I really expected when I was, you know, I, I focused so much on the period of the television show, which is 1969 to 71, which is also kind of the heyday of the American Indian movement. Um, and although he does speak about Native American issues multiple times on the television show, he devotes like whole segments, like 10 minutes long about the breaking of treaties and things like that. He does this amazing performance in an early episode with Buffy St. Marie of uh, the Peter Lafarge song, Custer, right? Where they're like just irreverently laughing through, you know, the massacre of George Armstrong Custer. So it's really fascinating, but then he does not mention the American Indian movement. He doesn't mention the occupation of Alcatraz. He doesn't seem to get asked about it because I couldn't find any information on it in you know any of the interviews that he gave um, at the time. But it's clear you know that his sympathies lie with the cause. You know, um, and that's a case where you know I think looking back on it, some folks would have wished that he would have said more. You know, that he would have done more. Um, and to see you know our new Secretary of the Interior uh, invoking that occupation just last week, right? Like, I, it's hard to imagine that Cash wouldn't have been 
you know, totally on board with that, you know, because of the, all of the advocacy that he had done on behalf of Native Americans. You are listening to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. And as always, we thank you for listening to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And then as always, uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe uh, to us on whatever format you listen to, whether it be on podcast or on our YouTube channel. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are on Linktree slash Green and Red Podcast. And we now also have postcards. And if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore or someplace like that in your area, that might be uh, a great spot to put some of these. Just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the Green and Red Podcast. And you can email us at greenredpodcast at gmail to get uh, a, a packet of your, of your postcards. Uh, and then if you really like us, you can uh, donate. And, you know, we we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors that we have. Uh, and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast, or you can make a one-time donation at green and red podcast.org and just hit that support button. It's also on the postcards. Uh, and so, uh, you know, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You've mentioned the TV show a few times, and that's, I think, the way many people kind of were introduced to Johnny Cash. And I know after our conversation, I wasn't aware of like the depth of the, the political uh, statements he'd made. So do you want to uh, just talk a little bit about that? I think this occurred right after um, the release of the Folsom Prison album. And I don't remember when he went to Vietnam, but it's around that time. And I know, um, I think the first clip I ever saw was that amazing duet with Dylan on A Girl from the North Country, which is just right. amazing. It's chilling. So do you want to just talk about kind of the importance of that show and how it brought Cash and Cash's politics, the whole man in black persona, to people who otherwise would have had you know, like people in Ohio, where I'm from, really weren't big fans of country music. And all of a sudden, Johnny Cash is there every week, and he's doing things that we never assumed that country music, country musicians would be doing. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to overstate the importance of it in terms of, you know, his the way that he engages as a public citizen with all these political issues, right? He had, of course, as I make the case, you know, engaged with many of these issues in his art. But uh, the television show, which started in the summer of 1969 and runs through the spring of 1971, gave him this opportunity to speak to whatever issue he wanted to every week, you know, to millions of people because it's broadcast on ABC. And unlike, you know, there's there's lots of other, it's basically a variety show, right? A kind of country music variety show. And there are lots of others at the time, including Hee Haw and the Glenn, Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. And before that, there had been the Porter Wagoner show with Porter Wagoner and Dolly Parton. And um, these are pretty popular shows, you know. Um, the cash show is different because for one thing, he insists on broadcasting it from Nashville. He wouldn't go to Hollywood or New York to do the show. So every week they set up in the Ryman Auditorium, the mother church of country music and the home of the Grand Ole Opry. And they set up midweek and they, they uh, rehearse and shoot the show. And then they break it all down to get out of the way for the Opry on Saturday night. You know, um, So he's got this kind of level of middle America authenticity, right? Just in the setting of the show, performing for people who aren't only from Nashville, but who've come from miles around to come to the Ryman Auditorium and see him perform. And the audience is very much a part of the show. You know, the way that the camera shoots it is you get to see the audience a lot from, from the front, from behind Cash on stage, and also from behind the audience looking down at the stage. So that's really, I think all of that is important in understanding you know, how he makes the show different. It's, and it doesn't have, there are comedy uh, or comedians who appear on the show because ABC insisted on that, but it doesn't have like the level of country goofball comedy, you know, that was more consistent with the other shows. You know, even the Glenn Campbell show had some fantastic musical performances, but it's like riddled with all this kind of comedy. So that it's very light, you know. Cash, on the other hand, has this regular segment called Ride This Train, where he basically takes, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of every show and transports the viewers back in time, usually, to understand like the work of a certain group of people and it could be you know coal miners or you know circuit riding preachers or truck drivers or something like that right it all tends to be kind of masculine um and gets them to reflect on america's past in a way that's subtly comparing it to the present you know and at times this is when he talks about native americans um or some of the things that are more obviously prisoners you know he does ride this train segments on prisoners multiple times so it's an opportunity for him to engage with these political issues but then he also engaged the political issues in monologues that came at the end of the show sometimes or 
in some of the guests that he chose where he brought people on and they would sing these songs that were very obviously topical songs about, you know, something that was happening in America today. And sometimes which he answered, you know, like to me, it's very telling that the day that he has Merle Haggard on and Haggard comes on and sings, you know, Oki from Muskogee um, and the fight inside of me, right. Which are kind of conservative classics. Uh, that's the day that cash debuts. What is truth? The song defending the right of young people to question their uh, political leaders, you know? So it makes for this really interesting dynamic. And there are lots of other examples of this on the show. And some of it may have, gone over the heads of some people tuning in. Maybe they tuned in just because they wanted to see Creedence Clearwater Revival or, you know, Linda Ronstadt or Neil Young or, you know, all these great younger artists or Dylan's on the first episode, you know, Joni Mitchell's on an early episode that didn't usually get television coverage. But as the show, you know, grows from pretty early on, he's, he's daring to talk about these political issues in pretty direct ways. And that <clears> made it much different from all the other kind of variety shows that were on at the time. Both of us have taught classes in the Vietnam War, and I know um, I've used this song, uh, Talking Vietnam Blues, so uh, multiple times. And I think two of the kind of ways that most people probably know about his politics are, are the Vietnam trip, and also the famous White House episode. You just mentioned What is Truth. I don't know how much time you have left, but if you could just kind of tell us you know, a little bit, because I think those things are really critical, the, the trip to Vietnam and the song, and then um, the famous episode with Nixon, where he, he pissed Nixon off at the White House. So. Yeah, I think like this is a good example of how his, his views evolved over time, you know, and the way that he empathizes um, could change over time. So like one thing is important to remember is that he's a veteran himself, right? He served in the Air Force for four years in the early 1950s. He's very much empathetic, sympathetic towards American servicemen, right? He also respects the power and authority of the commander in chief, right? Um, so for one thing, he goes to Vietnam to perform in January of 1969. In fact, the week that Nixon gets inaugurated, Cash is in Saigon performing like countless numbers of shows. And uh, I found in the archives of the Overseas Weekly, this um, newspaper produced for GIs that you know, he says to the crowd at one of the shows of all these servicemen who are, we, and there are recordings of this on the, on the live bootleg number three um, release, you can hear a sampling of songs that he performed uh, in Saigon, but not this quote, this quote I had, had to find in the archives um, where he says, you know, I don't, I don't hang with these shitheads back home, meaning the protesters. Like he's, he's not, this is January 69. He's, he's clearly against the protesters and he's here to perform for the soldiers, right? And later he talks movingly or writes quite movingly about how that trip really affected him. Like what he, the horrors of what he saw happening to American men, right? He's not often mentioning like what's happening to the Vietnamese. He's primarily moved by his own experience of people he knows losing their sons in Vietnam and the American boys that he sees that are, you know, killed and wounded and maimed in Vietnam. So he comes back and this is just before the television show starts, right? The show starts uh, in June of 1969 and he doesn't speak too overtly about Vietnam on the show in that first summer replacement season, but he starts to from the stage. He starts talking about that Vietnam War trip and he starts using this cryptic line about how he thought of himself as a dove with claws, as a guy who doesn't really like, you know, war, but he also gets kind of angry about like the protest against uh, the, the American war and the effect that it has on the GIs. Then he goes so far as to say on television on the first episode of the second season in January 1970 that he supports Nixon, right? This is after Nixon gives the silent majority speech and talks about how, you know, there's a vocal minority and that they're the only ones who can embarrass the United States as, this, as these protesters and we need to unify for peace, blah, blah, blah. Cash seems to, you know, take Nixon at his word. And he says on television, I and my family support President Nixon's, you know, plans for peace, right? Now, not long after he says this, um, he records the song, What is Truth, right? Which is, like I say, is the song about defending the right of protesters. So it's curious, right? Because here he is saying he supports the president, but then also he's defending the right of protesters in a way that it didn't seem like he was sympathetic to protesters the year before. But now he's had a chance to engage with a lot of people to talk about the war and hear from young people. And so when he goes to the White House, he not only refuses to play these two kind of ugly songs that the White House asked him to play, which weren't cash songs, you know, Oki from Muskogee and Guy Drake's uh, Welfare Cadillac, which is really, you know, a, hideous, a just racist really, song about, you know, people on welfare. And um, Reagan's campaign. <laughs> totally. Yeah, totally predicted Reagan's campaign. And then instead, Cash 
pauses in the middle of this concert when she said he was to the White House audience that he hoped to show him a little bit about, you know, the soul of the South. But then he totally departs from this and about 15 minutes in starts talking about young people that he's met and he plays what is truth, right? To the, and says to the president sitting 10 feet away, you know, we hope, Mr. President, that you can end this war even sooner than you think you can. So Nixon is clearly not expecting this, you know, uh, he's, he's expecting like a country music ally to come perform at the White House. Um, something like Merle Haggard did a year later uh, is what he's expecting, right? Instead, Cash uh, brings up the war in all of its complexity and at the time is Nixon's, you know, biggest uh, problem from a public relations standpoint, obviously. So it's a pretty fascinating kind of shift. Uh, and just around that time, his next album comes out with a song called Route One, Box 144, which is a really underappreciated song, but a, a, a fantastic barometer of where Cash stood on the war from the perspective of a guy who, you know, a working class guy who goes off to fight the war and gets killed and leaves his wife and family behind. And that's totally how he relates to the Vietnam experience, um, including Jan Howard, the country singer's son, Jimmy Howard, dying, and who's obviously the model for that song, you know. So... Sorry, I'm blathering on again and again, but I can talk about cash in the Vietnam War until the cows come home. <laughs> I have one more question on cash. You know, fast forward a little bit into the into the future, actually after he passes away, which is interesting, he passes away on September 11, 2003. Yeah, yeah. Thing. Um, I'll say that, you know, I went to the Republican National Convention protests in 2004, and there was actually a man in black block, right. uh, which were a bunch of, you know, anarchists uh, protesting the Republicans and Bush's war in Iraq, you know, a year after cash has passed away. And then more recently, just in the last like two weeks, we saw Ali Alexander, who's one of the organizers of the Stop the Steal rally, which morphed into the Capitol riot, doing a video with a, with an iconic picture of cash, you know, flipping the bird. Right. Um, and it, it seems like, you know, that's, that's two different, you know, extremes of the poll, of the political poll. And I'm, I'm kind of, both seem to want to own, you know, cash's legacy or cash's politics. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I, I know I really, you know, even from this conversation, he's a, he's a complicated figure, right. uh, but I'm just would like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think you stated it very well, you know, is that you have people um, who, you know, label themselves or think of themselves as in, inhabiting a particular place on the ideological spectrum um, and at polar opposites of that ideological spectrum who both feel like Cash was one of their own, right? Um, you know, for the people on the left, it's the Man in Black song where he sings for the poor and the beaten down, you know, and talks about how, you know, each week we lose 100 fine young men in the Vietnam War and that resonates, you know. And then for the people on the right, it's the ragged old flag cash, you know, the guy who seems like he's wrapped himself in the flag almost. Um, although as I point out in the book there, it's important to understand that song from the political context, the moment in which it was written. And I don't think it, he intended it. He didn't intend it in the way that it's often interpreted, but it's true that folks have tried to claim him. And I think it's a, this is a common thing with all of our favorite artists, you know, um, and favorite kind of celebrity public figures, even athletes, you know, where fans, do this thing where they are in love with the work of, you know, an artist, for example, and imagine that because the artist's work seems to speak to them, that the artist is just like them in every other way. They kind of project their own politics onto the artist, you know? Um, and that's a mistake a lot of people make. I've made it myself, you know, like I, I was devastated when I found out, not until I was in graduate school, that uh, Carl Yastrzemski, you know, spoke out in favor of Lyndon Johnson's war. I couldn't believe it. You know, Carl Yastrzemski was like my hero as a kid, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, playing for the Red Sox, you know, the, winning the, the Triple Crown in 1967, which I didn't even, wasn't even old enough to remember. I just knew the guy walked on water as far as baseball was concerned, you know. And uh, so, you know, I think it's a similar kind of um, cultural phenomenon where we project ourselves and our, our political ideals onto the people we love because we think they speak to us. But that, you know, that Sotheby's event was a really stark event in 2004 where you had people you know self-identified on the right and left you know practically into in a street battle outside the auction house over claiming cash as their own and the families had to intervene sometimes you know as kids uh, including recently in that case that you just mentioned where Roseanne cash had to um slam that guy for mis 
this uh, using the image of her father. Um, she's been pretty explicitly kind of liberal left, hasn't she? Yeah, like yeah, I think so. Yeah, and she's she's more likely of all of them to speak out about this kind of um, misuse of her father's image. You know, and she doesn't try to like her, her main complaint, which I think is valid. You know, especially anybody who's lost a parent. You know, is you don't want other people trying to speak for your parent uh, when they can't speak for themselves. You know, like that's quite a reasonable position to take. Um, so invoking this image or like a Charlottesville catastrophe in 2017, this guy, this right-wing asshole was wearing a cash shirt, you know, and the family had to, had to put out a statement and say, no way does that represent the values that our father taught us, you know? Um, and I think probably that's not going to stop, you know? I mean, I'd like to think that people could read this book and understand that cash, he didn't think of himself in ideological terms. He never spoke about politics in ideological terms. He never really took a side in partisan terms, like he did campaign for a few political candidates here and there. But, you know, one of them was a Republican, Winthrop Rockefeller, the governor of Arkansas in the 1960s, who was a moderate Republican in favor of prison reform. Um, and he supported Jimmy Carter and he campaigned for Al Gore in 1988, you know, but uh, mostly didn't like take partisan stands or ideological stands and really spoke about politics in a way that came from the heart and came from his own experience, which is how lots of Americans experience politics, you know, and lots of Americans will appear inconsistent to those who kind of set the parameters of, you know, normal political discourse, you know. In the wrap, we're going to let you kind of add whatever you want about cash, but I do want to ask you about sure. uh, the documentary, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago, I got an email saying, would you watch this and blurb it? And it was the voice who said no, and I knew you were involved in it, I didn't know you were the narrator. Yeah. Um, it's really uh, fantastic, and you know, it includes the big names, the MLK, Muhammad Ali, John Baez, David Harris, but also talks to just kind of people you never heard of who, who resisted the draft, and talks about the sheer magnitude, literally hundreds of thousands of uh, people resisted the draft, thousands of people went to, you know, were, were put on trial, convicted. Um, you know, just kind of say a few things about that, you know, what it meant to you, and, uh, you know, if, I don't know if it's that, is it publicly available yet, or? Almost. It's been on, it's been on like the festival circuit uh, yeah. for the last year or so. And I think COVID's made it a little bit difficult for them to find distribution. But my understanding is uh, Bullfrog Films, which puts out a lot mm -hmm. of kind of activist type films, is going to distribute it. Um, so it should become more widely available. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was a thrill to participate in because the director is Judith Ehrlich, uh, who did that great film on uh, Dan Ellsberg uh, called The Most Dangerous Man in America. Um, and she'd previously done a film, too, about uh, resistors to the Second World War, you know, um, those who fought against the good war. Um, and, you know, it's extremely, I think, well done in the way that, like you say, it mixes some of the more famous stories like Muhammad Ali's resistance of the draft um, or Joan Baez and David Harris, you know, their place as a kind of prominent um, spokespeople for the movement with, you know, a lot of the rank and file unfamous draft resistors and takes it all the way through people, you know, who went to prison um, for turning in their draft cards or for refusing induction um, and does a good job of, of capturing you know, the experience on the West Coast as well as the East Coast and in places in between, you know, and better than any other film I've seen uh, on the anti-war movement that deals with draft res resistance is like firmly connects civil rights and draft resistance, like shows how important draft resistance was uh, to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You know, they've got uh, Cleve Sellers is one of the main talking heads from SNCC. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's that's a story that at least on film has never been told. And um, so I hope it gets a wide audience because, you know, at the time that we were making it, uh, people were talking about, you know, the resistance, like resisting Trump and things like that. And, you know, I don't know how you felt about it, but like the, the forms that resistance took um, often weren't, you know, to the degree that I think are necessary when you talk about resistance. And this is a community of people who, you know, were risking their freedom, you know, were expecting to go to prison uh, at kind of the moment when their parents were worrying about what they were going to do, you know, after college and get a job and things like that. And we're just basically putting their futures on the line to protest against the Vietnam War. And I think it's a model of, you know, what real resistance can 
look like you know it's that's a discussion that's gonna have pretty much every day um, yeah. it's like we live in this social media world where everybody's hysterical yeah you know, trump's a nazi the world's you know we're nazi germany and what are you gonna do about it you're just gonna sit there and tweet all day and so right. no it's, it's absolutely so 2022 yeah and um <laughs> right. you know in, in the blurb what i said was like this is a great you know story about vietnam but it's also a great you know kind of history lesson about just protest and how to yeah. do that and that was kind of the point that we can learn a lot from this stuff you know um you know i live in texas where you know it's taliban occupied texas i call yeah. it and uh you know, not a single, nothing's gone on. I mean, you know, look at, they're just running roughshod, abortion rights voting. And throughout this, no one's gone to Austin. No one's tried to do a sit-in. They all invoke Martin Luther King and kind of, I think, forgot what King or the 1960s anti-war movement actually was doing. So it's, it's great. Right. And, um, you know, you're also kind of, uh, you know, in the documentary quite a bit, just kind of giving this historical background. So no, I really thought it was a, a great, uh, a great documentary. Yeah, um, I know you. you're doing, you're doing a ton of media, so we don't want to steal too much of your time. But um, I mean, is there anything we didn't talk about that you think is important? Anything you want to say about the uh, cash or any of the other things you're doing or what you're working on now or, you know, whatever you feel like? Uh, well, I think the only thing I'd say, I guess, is that, you know, part of what I'm trying to do in all my work is, you know, expand the way that we think about political experience and political culture, you know, because it's, it's especially, ob or I don't know, what's the right word? It's especially kind of jarring to me when I come to the States, uh, which I do, you know, like I spend a lot of time here in the summertime, but my job is in France, but I, I come back and, and see the way that political coverage is handled on television and the, what I find to be the really limiting vocabulary of the way that we talk about American politics, you know, and if you watch any of the major 24 hour news channels, right, it's all very kind of oversimplified and uh, I find frustrating. Um, and I myself had never, because I was a scholar of social movements and I was a political organizer myself, tended to think, you know, that that was the major challenge that we could make to political discourse was through social movements. And one time I was at this when I was working uh, with Witness Against Torture here in New York and we went to this event that was put on by the Center for Constitutional Rights, right? It's like amazing legal firm that does all kinds of fantastic work, including defending uh, people at Guantanamo. And they put they put on this theatrical piece that they held off Broadway. You know, there was basically a, a, an impeachment trial of members of the Bush administration, and it had a bunch of downtown, um, you know, New York actors come and read out stuff, and it was really captivating. And then afterwards, they had a post-show panel, and one of the people on the panel was the feminist psychologist Carol Gilligan, right? And they asked, I can't remember exactly the question that they asked her, but she said something that at the time I, I didn't really get. And she said, you know, I think the most important thing is for our art to uh, inhabit politics, like that that's the only way we're going to reach the people, like the way that we used to do it through marches and demonstrations and social movement organizing clearly isn't enough. But if you can make art that reaches a wide audience, you know, that can have some kind of lasting change. Now I'm in at that moment in the middle of being, you know, organizing a social movement, a political movement, and I'm a scholar of it. And I thought, I thought that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, you know, like I just didn't get it. But then thanks to the research I was doing on cash and later on dead Kennedy's, for example, and research I'm still doing on uh, San Francisco punk and the politics of that scene in the late 1970s. Um, and I'm going to do this other citizen biography of Neil Young. Um, when you think about like the, the, the art that's produced, you know, either by these subcultures or by these individual artists and the reach that they have and how often they're not, you know, mouthpieces for a particular political ideological perspective, the way that say, you know, the cultural left of the thirties or the folk music that came out of that was right. Still has the capacity to really reach people and worm its way into people's minds and open a space for political discussion and experience that's valuable, you know? Um, and so like the point of all this work is to try to change the discussion, not only about Johnny Cash, which I really hope it does, but also about like how we as Americans experience politics, how we talk about politics and how we ought to be able to talk about it in more nuance and subtlety than, you know, is evident on the 24 hour news channels that I'm seeing. Well, you know, in class, <clears throat> I use a ton of music and video. You know, I always invoke Springsteen. I learned more from a three-minute record than I learned in school. And exactly. you know, when I was out, we talked about, you know, that, that, and when I visited you, the commodification of Vietnam and how we learn about it and how, you know, uh, Easy Rider becomes commercial for Mercedes-Benz yeah. 30 years later. 
So, um, Mike, I'll, I'm, I'm sure Scott will have a, a final, but I just want to thank you. It's always great catching up. I've known you for a long time and admired you, and I'm so happy for your success. I can't think of anyone who deserves it more. And, you know, Abed and I have an open invitation for you anytime you want to come to Houston. Uh, we'd love to have you there. So uh, thanks so much and continue good luck. And, um, you know, we'll have you back on sometime just to talk about, you know, whatever music, whatever, whatever you feel like. So thanks so much. Okay. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And I'd love to, I'd love to get to Houston. That would be yeah. terrific. Yeah. I'll come talk about Johnny Cash anywhere you want, actually. Yeah. <laughs> come to the Bay Area, too. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you want to tell, us, uh, tell our audience where they could find the book, the best place to find the book? Well, you know, I promote independent bookstores as much as I can. Um, and uh, most of them, I think, can are carrying the book and can certainly order it, you know, if you can't find it. You can find it on the Basic Books website, which is my publisher, um, that has links to, you know, a lot of the online uh, merchants as well. Um, so it's pretty easy to find, I guess, uh, and, it, and in various forms, you know, the audiobook and uh, I think ebooks, Kindle versions, whatever. They've, they've got all those versions. Not yet paperback, obviously, but that will come. So, um, yeah. It's been it's been great talking to you, Mike. Yeah, and great um, to see you too, Scott. It's been a long time since we've seen each other, but yeah, yeah for sure. A lot. Uh, folks, you've been listening to Michael Stewart Foley talking about the politics of the politics of Johnny Cash. Uh, this is the Green and Red podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, please go down and hit that subscribe button. The more subscribers we have, the bigger our reach. Uh, and then also, it's the end of the year, so if you want to check us out and give us a little bit of a donation, you can go to GreenRedPodcast.org and hit that support button, or you can go to Patreon uh, and become a patron at Patreon.com/backslash/GreenRedPodcast. And uh, we appreciate all of you listening in and sharing this. And we'll talk to you again real soon. One morning at breakfast, I said to my wife, we've been everywhere once and some places twice. As I had another helping of country ham, she said, we ain't never been to Vietnam. There's a bunch of our boys over there. So we went to the Orient, Saigon. Well, we got a big welcome when we drove in to the gates of a place that they call Long Ben. We checked in and everything got kind of quiet. But a soldier boy said, just wait up tonight. Things get noisy. Things start happening. Big, bad firecracker. Well, that night we did about four shows for the boys and they were living it up with a whole lot of noise. We did our last song for the night and we crawled into bed for some peace and quiet, but things weren't peaceful. And things weren't quiet. Things were scary. Well, for a few minutes, June never said one word and I thought at first that she hadn't heard. Then a shell exploded not two miles away. She sat up in bed and I heard her say, what was that? I said, that was a shell or a bomb. She said, I'm scared. I said, me too. Well, all night long, that noise kept on, and the sound would chill you right to the bone. The bullets and the bombs and the mortar shells shook our bed every time one fell, and it never let up. It was going to get worse before it got any better. Well, when the sun came up, the noise died down. We got a few minutes sleep, and we were sleeping sound. Then a soldier knocked on our door and said, the last night they brought in seven dead and 14 wounded. And would we come down to the base hospital and see the boys? Yeah. So we went to the hospital ward by day, and every night we were singing away. Then the shells and the bombs took on again, and the helicopters brought in a wounded man night after night, day after day, coming and going. So we sadly sang for them our last song, and reluctantly we said so long. We did our best to let them know that we care for every last one of them that's over there. Whether we belong over there or not, somebody over here loves us and needs us. Well, now that's about all that there is to tell about that little trip into living hell. And if I ever go back over there anymore, hope there's none of our boys there for me to sing for. I hope that war is over with. And they all come back home to stay in peace. <laughs>